Is angioplasty a cost-effective treatment for stable coronary artery disease patients? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to our series, Focus on the Heart on ReachMD. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Weintraub. Dr. Weintraub is the chair in cardiology and professor of medicine at Christiana Care Health Systems in Newark, Delaware. Dr. Weintraub and his colleagues have been involved in the COURAGE trial, and recently they have reported a paper on the cost-effectiveness of percutaneous coronary interventions in optimally treated stable coronary patients in one of the circulation journals. Dr. Weintraub, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be here today. Let's start again by talking about the COURAGE trial in a little bit more detail. Tell us again the background of this trial and what the rationale of the trial was. So PCI, or percutaneous coronary intervention, has been around since the 1970s when it was invented by Andreas Grunzig, first with balloon angioplasty and then with bare metal stents and and more recently, in the last number of years, with drug-eluting stents. PCI is and has always been in the setting of chronic stable coronary disease, largely a treatment for angina because there have been a series of trials prior to COURAGE that showed no benefit in prevention of cardiovascular events. Now, let me point out, that's different from acute coronary syndromes. In the setting of either ST segment elevation MI or non-ST segment elevation MI, PCI has been shown to prevent future events, but it's not in the setting of chronic stable coronary disease. However, there have been concern about prior trials that the patient populations weren't appropriate or that the treatments weren't as contemporary or that the medical therapy wasn't as good in prior trials. And this gave rise to the COURAGE trial which was larger and more carefully designed with the same medical therapy in both arms. And by far the largest of the trials in this area as a strategy trial comparing an initial therapy with PCI versus an initial therapy with medical therapy, but with the best possible medical therapy in both arms. I think that's a very important point because one of the important things that I found with this trial is it was designed in a way to try to give what they called optimal medical therapy to all of the patients. Can you just briefly describe what did the trial mean by optimal medical therapy? Was it determined ahead of the time or was it determined by the individual investigators? So this is very important. We use the same therapy in both arms, and this was according to protocol based on guidelines, rather aggressive interpretation of the guidelines for control of blood lipids, especially LDL cholesterol, but HDL cholesterol as well, control of blood pressure, control of diabetes in patients with diabetes, smoking cessation, an exercise program, and diet. So the way the trial was put together is, for example, National Cholesterol Education Program guidelines, it was mandated by the trial that all the patients fit those guidelines and the most aggressive arms of those guidelines. That's correct. And of course, optimal medical therapy included treatment for angina as well. And was there in the protocol a way of treating angina? Was beta blockers used first or was it again up to the investigator? Well, that we left up to the investigator, how they chose to combine nitrates, beta blockers, and calcium blockers. However, all of the investigators involved in COURAGE were quite experienced cardiologists, and the idea was to treat angina medically to complete control of angina. And so then to get into this trial, I would presume everybody had an angiogram to look to see if they had significant coronary disease. What then determined if a patient had an angioplasty or not? So they had to have both obstructive coronary disease and inducible ischemia, unless they had very tight stenoses. So we want to make sure that patients 
did not have really minor coronary disease, but enough coronary disease to have inducible ischemia, which we measured most of the time with uh, nuclear stress testing. And then they were randomized to receive angioplasty. Was this all done with stents at this time, or was balloon angioplasty part of the trial as well? A small percentage were balloon angioplasty. The vast majority were coronary stenting. And was a lot of drug-eluting stents used in this trial, or was this prior to the drug-eluting stent era? The very last number of patients randomized in the trial during the drug-eluting stent era, so this was largely bare metal stenting. And the final outcomes of the trial showed what? So we randomized 2,287 patients at 50 sites in the United States and Canada, followed them up for mean of about 4.5 years, some patients for as long as seven years, and we found no difference in heart event rates, no difference in death or MI, no difference in death alone, cardiovascular death, MI alone, stroke, or any heart endpoint. But we did find benefit in terms of angina, better control of angina with PCI than with medical therapy alone. So we didn't prevent heart attacks or prolong life, but the quality of life in patients who were initially randomized to PCI, there was a benefit. Yes, there was. Now, the more recent paper that you and your colleagues published looked at cost-effectiveness of PCI. And I'm going to show, I guess, some of my unfamiliarity with this uh, concept. What exactly do we mean by cost-effectiveness? What type of cost are we looking at here? Well, the first thing to think is, what do we mean by this at all? And that is, we're seeking value. We want to have medical therapy or a procedure that's worth what we pay for it. That's a value. And we measure that by looking at cost and outcome at the same time in one metric. And we do that by looking at what's called an incremental cost-effectiveness ratio. So it's how much do we spend, and again, here the word is incremental, how much do we spend on a new therapy for how much gain? So in the COURAGE trial, our measure of cost was difference in cost between the two treatment arms, those treated with optimal medical therapy and those treated with optimal medical therapy plus PCI. We looked at the difference in cost between them and we looked at the difference in effectiveness. And we measured effectiveness here by looking at survival and survival adjusted for how sick the patients were, that is quality adjusted life years of survival. So since there was no difference in survival in the trial, would you have expected from the beginning that there would have been no cost savings if you only looked at survival? We thought it would be most unlikely. The results were as expected, but of course you really don't know and you don't understand the distribution until you look at it. And this is also very important that we look at the distribution of the difference in cost, uh, the distribution of difference in effectiveness measures then we can display that graphically in what's called the cost-effectiveness plane. We can see how often we have patients in whom there's increased cost with a gain in effectiveness or increased cost with no gain in effectiveness. If you're just joining us, you are listening to our series Focus on the Heart on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Weintraub. We are talking about the COURAGE trial and some recent cost-effectiveness analysis of this trial. You mentioned the term quality-adjusted life year gained or quality-adjusted cost-effectiveness. What exactly does that mean? How is it adjusted for quality? So... We have an overall measure of quality of life called utility. 
Utility is scaled from zero to one, with zero being death and one being perfect health and functioning. And we measured this in the COURAGE trial, as well as measuring survival. So by knowing utility and knowing each piece of survival, knowing utility at points along the time, we could multiply bits of survival by the utility for each time frame and then sort of add them up. And so we sort of total the number of quality-adjusted life years that we have on our patients. So what did the results show? Is PCI cost-effective? Our results would suggest that PCI is not cost-effective. We found no difference in survival, no difference in utility, an increase in cost of about $10,000. We also extended our results to a lifetime and found that that increased cost of the PCI is essentially never made up, that the increase in cost that's $10,000 or so, essentially persists for a lifetime for no gain in life years or quality-adjusted life years. And so if we look at cost per life year gained, we get a very high number. Now, our point estimate is in the range of $200,000 or so, but the point estimate isn't terribly meaningful. What we really need to look at is the distribution, and that distribution includes essentially infinity. In other words, our results are not different from we get no gain in survival or we get an infinite cost for any gain in survival. So in other words, even with the crossovers that have occurred, we never do regain back that initial outlay of cost for doing the PCI? Yes, that's correct. You raise a very important point because what we did not find in Courage, and we're not even testing, was whether PCI should be done at all. What we're saying is that we do not have to do, in the setting of chronic coronary disease, we do not have to do PCI as an initial management strategy. Rather, we can wait, treat our patients, see if they get better, see if their engine improves, and if they don't improve, we can do PCI at that time. And that's a safe thing to do. Would you anticipate or guess that that type of strategy where you delay PCI until it absolutely is necessary based on symptoms, that that would end up being a more cost-effective way of treating patients? For many patients, I think that what we need to do is to look carefully at our patients. We did find that those with the most severe angina do benefit from earlier PCI. So if patients are really disabled by their angina and can't function, well, then I think it's quite reasonable to do PCI and not defer. However, if patients have little or no angina, and we know that they're not going to gain in terms of prevention of of events, then there's every reason to defer doing the PCI. So really, all of the results of the COURAGE fit together like a web, allowing us to make better decisions about how to care for our patients and not have to reflexively think, oh my gosh, there's a blockage in this vessel. I must do PCI immediately to prevent events. We don't need to do that. We can temporize. By temporizing, our patients will do just as well, and we can save money. I'm sure there's lots of cost that I know I certainly don't think about. For example, the cost that would happen if a patient is disabled and can't go to work and can't have an income. Is there any way that those type of costs can be put into this type of model? Is that looked at at all in these type of studies? Yes, it's looked at all the time, although it's very difficult to do because the quality of data, when trying to look at these kinds of costs, which are sometimes called indirect costs, the quality of data are usually not as good as the direct medical care costs. We've looked at that in Courage and really did not find a lot of difference between the arms. Now, I know cost effectiveness is talked about a lot with different types of therapies. Is there a thought in the field of what a reasonable cost of a procedure would be or what a reasonable cutoff would be for something to be considered cost effective? Or is that a poor way of looking at this type of data? 
So I think that you shouldn't look at a cost of a procedure. Some procedures are very expensive, but can be cost-effective. For instance, ICDs, especially for high-risk patients, high risk of sudden death, are quite cost-effective. For patients at low risk of sudden death, ICDs aren't particularly cost-effective at all. So expensive procedures can still be cost-effective if they really can save a lot of life years. That's why having the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio is meaningful. Now, people have used arbitrary numbers saying, well, if it's below a certain dollar figure, it's cost-effective, and if it's above that dollar figure, it's not. That kind of number or benchmark is used a lot, but really has no scientific place. It has some role from a policy-making point of view. In the United States, if the cost for quality-adjusted life year gain is low, as you will see in some pharmaceutical trials, below $10,000, and sometimes even lower, and for things like smoking cessation, it can be in the hundreds of dollars or even less for life year gained. Such interventions are highly cost-effective. Once we start getting into tens of thousands of dollars, it becomes a little more iffy. And if we're spending more than $100,000 for quality-adjusted life year gain, people will generally find it uncomfortable that we're spending too much. Now, a figure that's often used is $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year gain because that was based on renal dialysis studies from long ago. And I think we have to be very careful about absolute benchmarks like that. The other thing is that I think in terms of how you use cost-effectiveness analysis, cost-effectiveness analysis has too many problems to set public policy by itself, but it can be one more component of helping us understand and helping us make better public policy, but it's only one component. Now, in this trial, everybody was treated with optimal medical therapy, and you've mentioned that cost-effective analysis in the past has shown that many of the medical therapies that we use are very cost-effective. Is it possible with this trial that you had so many good therapies already on board that any incremental therapy added on, in this case PCI, would never have been able to show further benefit because you've already improved quality and reduced risk uh, markedly with the baseline therapy in the trial? That's a very important point. If you look at the event rates, the event rates were relatively low compared to uh, therapy for chronic stable coronary disease that you might have seen 20 years ago. The event rates, this has been noticed in many trials in recent years, the event rates have been low. And yet, if you look at the characteristics of our patients in in Courage, if you go and read the articles, you'll see that these do not appear to be low-risk patients at all. I think, in point of fact, the things that we're doing, treating our patients with aspirin, statins, good blood pressure control, getting our patients not to smoke, getting them to get out and walk, really markedly reduce event rates. It is harder in such a setting for a procedure to reduce event rates. I don't see that as a problem, of course. I think that's great that our medical therapy is so effective. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Weintraub, who has been our guest. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino. You have been listening to a series, Focus on the Heart, on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thank you for listening.